I'll be honest, as an adult, I don't read a lot of mysteries. Recently though, I found my way to Encyclopedia Brown for the first time for this episode, and I wonder if getting into this series earlier would have developed in me a longer-term interest in the genre. I'll just say it, these books are cool. In each installment of the Encyclopedia Brown series, readers get the chance to interact with main character Encyclopedia's detective work by trying to figure out a handful of mysteries on their own and checking in the back of the book to see if they're right. Donald J. Sobel published the first book in this series, Encyclopedia Brown, Boy Detective, in 1963. That first title is our focus on this episode. Over the next hour, my guests and I take a deep dive into all things Encyclopedia Brown. We talk about the author, the origin of the series, and its unique format. We also break down our thoughts on each of the mysteries in this first installment. Please excuse any page turning in advance. We discuss parallels between Encyclopedia Brown and the Babysitter's Club, the way intelligence is presented in these characters, our complicated feelings about one Sally Kimball, and the role that encyclopedias play, or don't play, in 2022. I am thrilled to welcome another Philly-based bookworm as my guest for episode 186. Say hello to Jules from the Literary Lifestyle blog, where books meet lifestyle. This website helps more than 100,000 busy women every month find their next great read or get more from their last great read, paired with cozy modern lifestyle. Think of it like reading rainbow for grown-ups. Popular topics on the site include celebrity book clubs, bookstagram tips, and the Rory Gilmore Book Club, which every month reads a book mentioned on Gilmore Girls. This episode is actually a collaboration with the Rory Gilmore Book Club. You'll hear more about that shortly, and you'll find lots of Gilmore Girls nuggets sprinkled throughout the episode. Check out The Literary Lifestyle at thelitarylifestyle.com. Follow Jules on Instagram at bookish underscore Jules, and check out The Rory Gilmore Book Club by following at The Rory Gilmore Book Club. You can check out all things SSR by following the show on social media. Find us on Facebook by searching the SSR Podcast or the SSR Podcast Community, and follow on Twitter and Instagram at SSRPod. You will find so much good stuff at the link in my bio on Instagram. Show notes for this episode, SSR merch, details about the free SSR book club, and info about joining the SSR Patreon community, which allows you to support the podcast for a few dollars every month in exchange for lots of cool exclusives. Visit www.patreon.com slash SSRpodcast or go to www.ssrpodcast.com and click support at the top of the page to learn more. I couldn't do this without the support of SSR's patrons. This episode is brought to you by my brand new writing community. Are you interested in writing fiction? If your answer is yes, then you don't need to qualify it with lots of experience, dozens of completed short stories, or a brilliant idea for a novel. You just need to come join us. My goal is to share what I've learned in my MFA program with other aspiring writers by offering everything from accountability and inspiration to advice and workshopping. There are multiple ways to get involved, and you can get all the details at www.patreon.com slash ahkwriters. I can't wait to write with you. Find your next great audiobook from Libro.fm. When you shop with Libro.fm instead of a larger company, you're supporting independent bookstores, which I think always feels great. The audiobooks you get from Libro.fm are exactly the same as the ones you would buy from the big guys, and they're the same price, too. SSR listeners can get a discount on their first audiobook purchase from Libro.fm. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and use code SSRPODCAST when prompted on the site to get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old-school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Jules. Welcome to SSR. Hi, Allie. I'm so excited to have you here. We have a really fun collaboration that you actually reached out to me about. And I I sort of just want to hand it over to you to talk about why you reached out to me and how this ties into your blog and a project that's happening there this month. 
So I am a blogger at theliterarylifestyle.com and the theme of the blog is where books meet lifestyle. So what your listeners might really enjoy is that it's kind of based on reading rainbow and I say it's reading rainbow for women. So fun. It kind of just taking that, you know, joy when I was a child of watching the show and pairing books with lifestyle and then going to the library and picking up all the books and learning different things on the show that paired with the books. I kind of wanted to make that my focus on on the blog. And one of the ways we do that is I run the Rory Gilmore book club. And what we do, I think it's the perfect match of books and lifestyle. We watch the Gilmore girls and read the books that are mentioned on the Gilmore girls, which there's over 400 total. And to narrow it down every year, we do one book a month on a theme. So this month's theme is children's books. And I thought it would be perfect for your podcast. Yes, I'm so glad you reached out. I think it's such a great idea. I'm going to ask you a very controversial question. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. Because we're talking about Gilmore Girls, I have to know. Team Dean, Team Jess, or Team Logan? I actually, so I was just watching the show that paired with the book that we're talking about today. And I somehow knew you were going to ask me this because the episode is very Team Jess versus Team Dean. Okay. But I'm actually Team Logan. Me too. Okay, good. Okay. See, I get very insecure because I feel like a lot of people are very skeptical of Team Logan folks, but I have been Team Logan for a really long time and I it's rare to find a fellow Team Logan person. So this is fantastic. I think the thing with Logan for me is that he understands that side of Rory. Yeah. Meaning like the upper echelon, upper class lifestyle, but he still has some of the other side to it as well. And I think the other two would have had a harder time adjusting in the long term to that lifestyle. Yeah, I think that's true. Okay, great. So one more thing we already have in common is our Team Logan allegiance. That's great to know. But let's start talking about the book in question today, which is Encyclopedia Brown by Donald J. Sobel. And there were 29 books in this series, but we are focusing, of course, on the first book today, which is just called Encyclopedia Brown Boy Detective, um, which is quite fitting. It was published in 1963. And before we really start digging into this really interesting format that I honestly knew nothing about, Jules, I'd love to hear from you about any history you have with this book or if you don't have any history with this book. So I was glad you picked this one. And the way we went about it is I gave you the list of all the children's books that had been mentioned on the Gilmore Girls. And you had mentioned this one and I thought it was a great one. I love mystery books and I think a lot of your listeners probably will um, enjoy it as well. Encyclopedia Brown for me is one of those books that I remember as a child, but only very vaguely. I know I've read it at some point, but I don't have those nostalgia feelings that, say, The Babysitter's Club or American Girls gives me. But I know I had read it at some point. And even looking back and seeing all those old 80s book covers, and I love a good 80s book cover. Some of them looked so familiar to me, but I couldn't place it the way I would all the American Girls books. Yeah, so I never read any of these books. I was not an Encyclopedia Brown girl as a kid. I don't know why. I talk about this on the podcast sometimes, but I feel like at least in my sort of circle as a kid, like this was kind of like a boy book, at least in my school library. And so nobody ever gave it to me. I don't ever remember seeing any of my friends reading it. I heard people talk about it, but I don't think I ever even like picked one up to consider it. So I was excited to finally get a chance to experience Encyclopedia Brown, aka Leroy Brown. That's his legal name. Encyclopedia Brown is his nickname. But let's talk a little bit about the series as a whole first, because it's pretty interesting. I, like I said, knew very little about it, but Donald J. Sobel wrote these books over a very long period of time. So this book was published in 1963. And the last book, the 29th book in the series, wasn't published until 2012. And that was a year after the author passed away. So these books have had a very long life. A really interesting fun fact that I found out about this first book in the series in particular is that it was written in just two weeks. Have you heard that fun fact? I did. And I think it's interesting. Another thing I heard um, kind of looking back in, into um, the book and the series, I agree. It's, it's kind of mind blowing that it's lasted as long as it has. And one interesting thing I read, which is so true, is that for someone who, like Donald J. Sobel, I think I read that he sold over 50 million copies, yeah. yet he's not a household name. Yeah, And I think that's kind of crazy to have that long-standing success in the book industry and to not be one of those mystery writers that we know their and everyone knows their name. 
Yeah, that's so true. And he he never gave a television interview, I read. And then I also discovered that he would only ever speak with reporters and journalists over the phone because he didn't want anybody to be able to describe him or to ask for a photo. His photo was only ever printed in one book, and that was by mistake. So there's only like one photo really floating around on the internet about him. And I found a quote where he talks about how like, he didn't want it to be about him. Like he wanted the books to speak for themselves. And he didn't just write Encyclopedia Brown. He wrote a lot of nonfiction books about a range of subjects. And he also wrote a series for adults called Two Minute Mysteries, which I think have something of a similar format, which we'll get into shortly. But um, yeah, I mean, he was a very prolific writer. He was a World War II veteran who went to Oberlin College on the GI Bill, um, where he studied creative writing. There was only one creative writing class that you could take at Oberlin, and he took it and he fell in love with it. And he went to his professor and asked if he could take an advanced creative writing course. And because he told the professor that he had fought in World War II, the professor agreed to teach a one student advanced creative writing course. And Donald Sobel credits his whole career basically to this professor because some of the stories that he wrote in that class were the first that he sold to like pulp magazines. It's definitely mind blowing. I also um, read that he was rejected 24 times. And I think everyone has to put that into perspective to have something last so long and and to go through that amount of, of rejection that you just believe in this the concept so much. Yeah, and as an aspiring author, I'm like, it's always nice to stumble upon those stories because everybody wants to be that debut novelist who like lands the first agent they query and there is a bidding war for their manuscript and all these things, but that's not always how it works. And there are a lot of authors out there, including Donald J. Sobel, who did not experience that and still obviously experienced massive success. So everybody just keep trucking because if you're like Donald J. Sobel, you might still sell 50 million copies of your book. And these books have never been out of print, which I also thought was interesting because a lot of the books that we cover on the podcast have kind of come in and out over the years. And sometimes it's hard to even find copies of them, but these have just like always kind of been out there. That's a good point as well. I recently um, put a blog post up on my um, website about all of his books in order and you could find all of, I found all of them. And that is kind of, that's a really good point that um, so many times I do things like that where I'm, I'm getting an author's whole uh, catalog and you re- and you can't find them all. So that is a really interesting point. And it, it's a real testament to what he's done over several decades. Yeah, sometimes when I have guests on, they really have to hunt the book down, like go really into the the deep recesses of thrift books and all of these other uh, online sellers. And it was great to just be able to order a copy of this, even though it's so old. So I'm glad that you picked it. I feel like just learning about the author and about the publishing history of the series was really interesting. So he came up with the format for this book, which is the best way that I can describe it based on like my immediate reaction to it It was almost like a choose your own adventure kind of book. Do you you remember those books, Jules, from when you were growing up? Yeah, that's a a good um, comparison. It's a unique format. And I actually found it to be really fun. Like there was something fun about flipping to the back of the book versus just having it be on the next page or having it be at the end. Yeah, it's really satisfying. So in every Encyclopedia Brown listeners, for those of you who, like me, maybe didn't read these books when you were growing up, there are 10 different stories. And each story is like a mini mystery in which Encyclopedia Brown, boy detective, helps his dad solve a mystery because he is the police chief, or he solves a mystery on his own because he's very entrepreneurial and has like started his own little agency. And at the end of each one of those stories, there's a prompt for readers to turn to the back of the book to find out like how Encyclopedia Brown solved the mystery. Because of course, he solves every single one. But as a reader, you sort of have the chance to solve the mysteries right along with him. And then the author explains how the reasoning went down in the last few pages of the book. But I read that um, Donald J. Sobel came up with this format because when he was starting to research how to put these mystery books together for kids, Somebody gave him by accident, like a puzzle book. I don't know if it was like a crossword puzzle book or a word search book. And he, of course, saw that telltale thing where you turn to the back of the book and that's where you see the solution for the puzzles. And that's when it came to him because the first thing that he thought up when he was thinking about the series was the character. He really liked the idea of this boy who would be very relatable to kids, but the format came later. And it was thanks to this sort of like accidental book that came into his library stack. I love how it forces you to pause and think. Yeah. And I think it, it's good that it forces kids to pause and think too. The stories really have so many critical thinking and active listening skills to them. And it really does make a difference than just having the solution to the mystery right at the bottom that you really, you pause 
and you think about it. And then you can either keep reading, you can keep thinking about it, or you can flip to the back and see if you got it right. Yeah. And I didn't know that this was how the books were formatted. And I didn't like scan the pages before I started. I just opened it up. I was like, oh, this book is so short. I can read this in an hour. I got to the end of the first story and I was like, oh, this is so cool. What a fun surprise. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. I don't know if I forgot that that was the format, but um, let me ask you this. Yeah. So I, I read it. I read. I read it. I reread it just now, but I read it during the week at night, and I did not get the answer to the first story. Did you get the the answer to the first story? I'm gonna be honest with you, Jules. I didn't get the answer to any of them. No. No. I got a couple. I think I was, if I'm being honest, like I was sort of trying not to overthink it because I wanted to approach it as much as possible as like a kid coming to the book for the first time. And so I kind of tried to give myself permission to just like enjoy the ride. And I will say like, I'm not the most observant girl out there. And so it doesn't really surprise me that I didn't pick up on some of these clues. But then when I read the explanations for each story and for the solution, I was like, oh, right, like that makes sense. But I don't think they're all things that I would have picked up on. And certainly as a kid, I think I wouldn't have picked up on them. And I think that's so interesting as well, because when I reread it, I just imagined, I don't have any kids, but I imagined moms sitting with their kids and enjoying it just as much as the kid and trying to figure it out at the same time as the kid and seeing who picks up on what clues, because it really is about just figuring out what facts are mentioned, why, like there's always a reason something is mentioned. Like the one that really stood out to me was there was one where there was a doctor and it was a male doctor, but his name was Vivian. Mm. And I thought to myself, that is such an interesting fact. I know this has to play in here somewhere. So things like that. And I kind of approach mystery and thriller reading the same way that I'm always thinking like, why is this character in here? Is I'm, I'm kind of always thinking ahead and trying to think about it. Why, why are they mentioning this place or this thing or this character? What greater picture is that? So I, I did get a few of them, but I'd say maybe I was 50, 50 or maybe less than half I got. They're hard. They're definitely they a challenge. Hard. I was going to ask you about sort of your personality as a mystery reader, as an adult. So thank you for giving me the perfect segue for that, because I do think that some mystery and thriller readers really feel compelled to figure it out while they're reading. Like they want to sort of be a step or two ahead of the story and they are looking for the clues that an author is putting in along the way. Whereas I know that there are other readers who just sort of want to take in Mm -hmm. information in the exact way that it's being fed to them. And I fall into the latter category. I don't love to get ahead of myself. I sort of just want to experience it with the slow burn and like soak it in. Um, But it sounds like maybe you fall into the former category. I definitely do. Yeah. Well, that makes sense then that that's how you were like, you you really wanted to solve things ahead of Encyclopedia Brown, as I was like, you know what, if you're going to tell me the answer, I'll just flip to the back of the book. (laughs) (laughs) That's fine, too. I think the really cool thing about this format for kids, though, is that it allows kids to outsmart adults, both on the page, because often Encyclopedia as a character is figuring out mysteries that his dad, the police officer, can't figure out. But kid readers also get to be a step ahead of the grownups that they're reading about. And I think that that is really empowering for kids. That's a really good point. I love how Encyclopedia Brown is often smarter than adults. I think, you know, there's there's some books and some movies and things like that that fall into that category. And I always think it's just kind of a fun thing because as a, a kid, you might not, not feel that way. And something like this might allow you to kind of get into that window a little bit. And it, it also reminded me a little bit of the Babysitter's Club, where when Encyclopedia Brown and his quote partner Sally went and they were like, well, we need to open a bank account now. And it reminded me of the babysitters club and how they manage their club. And it really does teach all those adult type skills as well. And and kids take on these adult responsibilities. I just think it's kind of fun and interesting. Yeah, they sort of build their own world. And I had a similar reaction. I actually immediately after finishing Encyclopedia Brown moved on to a babysitter's club book that I'm prepping to record an episode about in a few days. And so I'm sort of in this headspace of entrepreneurial children, which is cool. And I loved watching Encyclopedia and Sally like set up shop. I love that he wrote this sign that was like 25 cents per mystery. And I love that his slogan is like, no mystery is too small. But then when people started coming to him with small mysteries, he was a little disappointed. He was like, I know I said that no mystery was too small, but like I was kind of expecting to handle things that were a little bit more impactful. 
I had the same exact reaction. I thought it was so funny. The sign was adorable. And then when people started coming to him, he's like, what do you got? Murder? Right. <laughs> it's like, dude, your sign says that no mystery is too small. So like I was really trying to start smaller here for you. What did you think about Encyclopedia as a character? I liked him. What I really envisioned him as was almost more like, how do I see him as an adult? And I mm. think he would be the absolute winningest Jeopardy champion. He would be hosting Jeopardy right now. So I kind of had that in my head as when I was looking at him as a child, I was thinking, who do I see him as an adult? Um, I did like him as a character. I love the description that he was smarter than an encyclopedia and he was like a library in sneakers. I just, that sentence and that phrasing of how they, the author described him just stood out to me so much and was so memorable. I love that he was smart. I love that he would always pause before answering so that he didn't seem too smart at the same time. So I really liked him. What, what did you think about Encyclopedia? I think my favorite thing about him is that he makes being smart cool. That's a really good point. Which I think, I think it's less rare now, but I, I think especially in 1963 when this book was written, like all of the heroes in books were probably more physical, like especially boy protagonists, I would think were not necessarily leading with their intellect first. Like maybe they were smart, but the thing that was most prominent about them was their physical strength or their athleticism. And in this book, we learn right off the bat that Encyclopedia Brown's thing is that he's really smart and he knows a lot of things. And I will say that the, I was sort of torn about this aspect of his personality where he is nervous to be smart. I think that's like the flip side of the coin, right? Because it is cool that he's smart. But like you said, Jules, he is a little bit nervous for people to know how smart he is. Like he doesn't want to correct anybody. He doesn't want to seem arrogant about his intelligence, which I appreciate. But at the same time, I felt like a little bit sad for him that he felt like he had to cover up any of his brains. Although of course, like there's a fine line between being overconfident and being I don't know do you know what I'm saying like I just I felt a little sad that he that kids are perhaps being presented an example of a kid who doesn't feel like he can fully present how smart he is I definitely understand what you mean and that came out to me when I went on YouTube and looked up some clips of when Encyclopedia Brown was a TV show around like 1989-1990 and when I saw the character that, or the actor that they had play him I thought to myself oh I'm kind of disappointed that he's so cute and oh, nothing against a, a really cute little kid but I right. kind of just wanted that sort of nerdy brainy freckle-faced character that I pictured him as from the book not just the cutest kid they could find oh that is a really good point because I think there's like a relatability factor right like right. one of the things about Encyclopedia Brown is that he's an underdog I mean he 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 kind of tries to go up against this town bully named Bugs Meanie and Bugs of course is awful to him he's like the head of a gang called the Tigers and Encyclopedia sort of just like can't take him on and he actually brings in a bodyguard named Sally Kimball who can kind of like be his big sister in a way and look out for him. And I think that that's probably relatable for a lot of kids who don't feel like they can take on the bully at school. I mean, it's nice to read about a, a, a kid who can take on those sorts of challenges, but this is a different take on a main character. And yeah, I, I think maybe a little bit of a geekier kid would have been nice. And I'm also thinking about the fact that like, I read another interview with the author who spoke about how he wanted Encyclopedia Brown to be smart, but he also didn't want him to be socially inept. Like he yes. wanted him to be very comfortable socially. And so that's part of why he added this layer of him being a little bit embarrassed by his brains. And so I guess like, again, I feel like I keep being like the flip side is, but there are a lot of flip sides. I think there is perhaps like a flip side or another perspective where it's like, we're seeing a different take on a hero, but we're also seeing a different take on a smart kid because so often like the smart kid in a book or in a TV show doesn't have social skills and doesn't necessarily know how to um, like be a chameleon into different conversations. And Encyclopedia can definitely do that. It just, I wonder like how chameleon is too chameleon? <laughs> I think it's a really good, good point. But Encyclopedia Brown does seem to navigate these questions pretty well. Um, his parents are like very sweet and very encouraging of his interests. His dad is the police chief, as I mentioned. And apparently like almost every single book begins at the kitchen table and all of the mysteries kick off in a conversation with his parents over a meal where his dad is like, I can't figure out this mystery. And luckily Encyclopedia is there to 
pick up on some inconsistency in the story. And so, yeah, that's how we enter the book. Did you have any thoughts about Encyclopedia's parents? Just like you said, I thought his mom was just so sweet and encouraging and understanding of who he was and what his skills and talents were. And I loved, um, like you said, that the dad would would kind of have that sort of tongue in cheek. Well, I can't figure I can't figure this one out. What do you think, Encyclopedia? And of course, Encyclopedia would just find that one little tidbit that everyone else was missing and the crime was solved. Yeah. Well, I wish that I could be like Encyclopedia because he seems to pick up on a lot of things that, as I already mentioned, I missed. <laughs> so let's go through some of these mysteries briefly. Listeners, I apologize for any page turning, but we are getting into it. So the first one is called The Case of Natty Nat. I just have to say, it's so fun to look at this book. Like as an mm-hmm. object, it's so, it just makes me happy. It's little, it's easy to read. The chapters are short. There's illustrations. Totally agree. It just brings me right back. The illustrations are old fashioned, but they don't feel it. Yeah, they really don't. I'll I'll try to post some pictures of these illustrations um, on Instagram this week, listeners, if you want to check them out. But they have an old-fashioned quality to them, but they don't feel dated. Like, it's sort of cozy without being stuck in an older era, if that makes sense. Cozy is such a good way to describe it. Yeah, this whole reading experience was cozy. Like I said, I picked it up and I was like, I know this is going to be a quick read, which was exciting. (laughs) Um, And then to sort of have the interactive element really helped. Okay, so the case of Natty Nat is the one that begins at the kitchen table, as we mentioned. And um, this is sort of a case of a robbery where a local business owner has said that he's been robbed. And Encyclopedia figures out there's some sort of fishy business going on, which I thought was very mature of him. He figures out that Mr. Dillon actually hasn't been robbed. And he sort of worked backwards to find somebody that he can accuse of robbing him. What did you think about this as an entry point for the story? I liked it. Again, I did not get the answer. So um, I thought he, he was way more perceptive than I was on that one in really listening to exactly what Mr. Dillon said happened and, and why it couldn't be possible. So I can see why his dad didn't get it either because neither did I. <laughs> it's okay, dad. You're not the only one. Um, I will say like if these, if this is how the police chief is solving his his crimes and his local mysteries like I think he needs to hire some other professionals I love that encyclopedia is available but if I had to give the dad some advice it would be that he should perhaps look to grow his staff just a thought or maybe give a encyclopedia a raise yeah give maybe give him a job (laughs) give him a job so the second story or the second mystery is called the case of the scattered cards and in this chapter we really get into that like entrepreneurial moment for him we do he says he would go into the detective business and help people he wouldn't wait until he grew up it was summer and school was out he could begin at once so earnest so earnest And that's where we see his sign as well. 25 cents per day plus expenses. Plus expenses. And also like, let's just take a minute to absorb 25 cents per day. Children of 2022, listen up because times have changed. Times have changed. (laughs) And I read that um, they never throughout the many, many decades, his uh, income never changed. It remained 25 cents per day. See, and now I would advise him, like, as you get more experienced, you should really think about increasing your rate because you... He needs to get Christy from the Babysitter's Club because (laughs) she would not allow 25 cents per day. I agree. Christy could be his business coach. I do think that if Christy were alive in 2022, she would probably be like an Instagram business coach and Encyclopedia Brown could hire her. I think that would be perfect because he's so earnest and Christy is so assertive. Yes. We're just making connections here, Jules. Like we we're are. just linking up these fictional characters, <laughs> helping them thrive, helping their businesses to grow. So Encyclopedia's first client is a boy named Clarence Smith. And Clarence says, I need your help. And this is where Encyclopedia says, no case is too small. Is it murder? And Jules, you mentioned that, I that interaction. That. I love that so much. And then Clarence says, no. And Encyclopedia says, kidnapping? Blackmail? And Clarence says, no, no, it's a tent. <laughs> Um, he's upset because he, these cool boys, the tigers led by Bugs Meanie, are claiming that his tent belongs to them. And this section, it just made me laugh because it calls into question, like, what is considered a mystery or like what is considered a crime? And for these kids, somebody saying that your tent is their tent is a crime. 
Right. And I, I think that's what I loved about this little mystery so much is that it really brought in that childhood charm. Whereas um, a lot of the other ones were were more um, adult-based, like robberies. This one really brought in those charms of what really matters to someone who's in fifth grade. Yeah. I mean, if you're in fifth grade and somebody takes your most prized possession and tries to convince... Like, I mean, I know we throw around the phrase gaslighting quite a bit, but it does seem to me like the Tigers are gaslighting Clarence by telling him that his tent is not his own. And if somebody's doing that to you when you're a kid, that's really confusing and stressful. So and and Encyclopedia could be his champion, which I loved. And of course, Encyclopedia comes in and is able to prove that the tent does not belong to Bugs Meany and his friends, but that it does belong to Clarence. And at the end of this chapter is where I have a little notation in the margin that says, fun, readers can figure out the mysteries, question mark. So yeah, I really had no idea what was going on. And, then, <laughs> and I was like, what a fun surprise. <laughs> um, okay, so the next one is called The Case of the Civil War Sword, which is interesting, sort of in a 2022 context. So in this one, Encyclopedia's client is named Peter Clinton. And he says, I want to hire you. And I think it's so cool that we're establishing this kid economy in this world. It's, it's its own kind of world building, really. It is. I love it. I love that whole theme in, in children's books. Yeah, it's like kids are able to make decisions. Kids are able to understand the value of the allowance that they're earning and to figure out how to use those funds and they communicate in their own way. I think in addition to seeing in this book that a character like Encyclopedia Brown is able to outsmart adults because he can solve these mysteries, kids also are seeing relationships being formed among children their age. They're seeing kids portrayed in a pretty independent way, kind of like living in ways that maybe they're more used to seeing adults live in their real lives. Yeah, I agree. And I, I've always loved that. And, and I still do. It always made me feel more independent when I was a child and I was reading these things. And it made me feel uh, more mature, like I could do those things too, step into bigger shoes. So I, I think it's fantastic. Did you ever start a business when you were a kid? That's a good question. So let me think back. I know we did a lot of lemonade stands in the summer and friendship bracelets and things like that. How about you? I had an American Girl, like how to start a business book. And so I think I, I feel like I had a lot of incomplete business plans. Like that book really inspired me. It was one of those really colorful, illustrated, like glossy paged guides that they used to publish in the 90s. And they suggested all kinds of things like babysitting. And I was never much of a babysitter that like making things and selling them mm -hmm. or like packaging up baked goods. So I feel like I had a lot of ideas. I don't know that I ever actually went through with it. I once started a school newspaper, but that wasn't a business because we didn't make any money. It was just like for fun because I wanted to to run that at school. But yeah, I always liked the idea of starting a business because it was fun to read about kids like Encyclopedia Brown. Right. And then like they just had so much fun together. They seemed so mature. Babysitters with their little um, see-through phone with all yeah. like the cool colors inside. They just seemed that much cooler than everybody else. I think that's what it was. Yeah, they were doing their own thing. And like they just seemed so grown up, even though they were my own age. So in the case of the Civil War sword, Peter Clinton comes to Encyclopedia and he asks, are you any good at swords? <laughs> Um, and he tells Encyclopedia that he has a chance to trade his bicycle for a sword and he wants to make sure that the sword is real. He's been told that this is a sword from the Civil War that belonged to Stonewall Jackson. And I bring this up because I think that like, obviously we're having different kinds of conversations about American history in 2022 than we were in 1963 when this book was published and even in the 90s when I was a kid. And I just, I was thinking that maybe there would have been a different historical figure chosen um, for this book in 2022. <laughs> Just a thought. That's a really good point. It jumped out to me that like, I don't know if the author would have wanted to portray these boys as so excited about a Stonewall Jackson memento. Mm -hmm. memento. Perhaps there would have just been a different figure. Yeah, I hope so. Just a thought. Okay, so Encyclopedia says, you want me to make sure the sword really did belong to Stonewall Jackson? And again, like, there's a very broad category of crimes and mysteries in this series, right? Because so, you know, we've had like a crime of possession in the first story where it's a matter of who does the tent belong to? And here, this is more of like a historical mystery. And it goes to show that Encyclopedia's knowledge base is quite encyclopedic in that he knows things about history that he can draw from for this 
mystery. But in the last one, he was able to like notice sort of the little details of what's going on around him so that he could find out that the the tent did belong to Clarence rather than the tigers. So Encyclopedia examines the sword and Bugs is like trying to to prove that it it is the genuine article that he is told Peter it is. He says, did you expect it to look new and shiny? It's more than a hundred years old. And Encyclopedia says, it doesn't look like it was ever worth $5. And I wrote, burn. (laughs) I do want to turn to the solution for this one because I thought that the solution for this one was really interesting. The solution to the Civil War sword case was, as soon as he had read the words on the blade, Encyclopedia knew the sword was a fake. The two clues were the words Bull Run and First. Jackson's men, being Southerners, would have called the battle by the South's name for it, the Battle of Manassas. Bull Run was the name given to the battle by the North. Also, the sword was supposed to have been given to Stonewall Jackson in August 1861. No one could have known then that there would be another battle on the same spot the next year in 1862. Only after both battles had been fought would anyone have used the word first to describe the battle fought in 1861. And I'm sorry, but Encyclopedia Brown is smart. He is. This is one of those uh, ones there where I, I felt dumber once I learned the answer. I thought... I am not Encyclopedia Brown. Um, I sort of knew when they when he mentioned that there were two battles, that that was an important fact because why else mention it? Um, but at the same time, I did not realize when I read the little tidbit here um, that the inscription said the first battle of Bull Run. I didn't pick up on that. This is sort of unrelated, but it's coming to me as we're just considering the encyclopedic nature of this boy's knowledge. I wonder how kids of 2022 respond to just the word encyclopedia. Yeah, I I read that somewhere. And I think it's true that today we would call him Wikipedia Brown or Google Brown. Yeah. I wonder how aware kids today are of encyclopedias as a resource. I definitely don't think um, they're aware. I think it's kind of an, an outdated concept. I would be shocked if any kid's parents still had you know, encyclopedias that they reference. I, I think he'd be Google Brown. Google Brown. That's cute. Google too. Brown. That's really cute. I have such clear memories of being in the school library and learning to use the encyclopedias. That was like a huge milestone when you were old enough to go to the encyclopedia section. And there was like a whole class dedicated to here's how you find what you're looking for. Like, how to really dig into the nitty gritty details as they're presented in encyclopedias. I also remember when we got new computers when we were little and computers were such a new thing and they would often come with discs, yeah. CD-ROMs that were encyclopedias. And they were always so fun for me because every you know every few years when we got a new computer, they would get that much better and better. And it was becoming more and more of an interactive experience that was actually fun to use as a, as a kid when you know we didn't have Instagram and all those things that being able to put in this little CD-ROM that was the encyclopedia and take a 3D view of a certain museum or a certain town or something um, was such a cool concept. It's just, it, it's different now. I agree. I did have, um, I had like the world book encyclopedia CD-ROM that I got as a birthday gift, I think. And I was like so excited about it because it was the first time you really in the 90s were able to like click around into things. And like, I just think it really taught me how to navigate and interact with a computer in a way that I hadn't had to before, hadn't had the opportunity to before. So yeah, I, I sort of miss encyclopedias. Although, I mean, we all know we use Wikipedia like every day in our lives now. Right. So so this next story is called The Case of Mirko's Grandson. And this is where we meet Sally Kimball. And so I want to focus on Sally for a minute because it's here that we learn that while Bugs Meanie, of course, is well known to be like the brawniest kid in town, there's an opportunity for, for there to be a proof of who is like the smartest kid in town. And so Sally Kimball, who is known to be very smart, is pitted against Encyclopedia. He sets forth like a riddle for her or a mystery for her and um, sees if she can solve it. And they decide that like, if she can solve it, it means that she's smarter than Encyclopedia Brown. What did you think about Sally? So I have a couple of thoughts about Sally. I'm torn whether I should be happy that they included a girl um, as part of the storyline or whether I should be upset that she could never be as smart as Encyclopedia Brown. But at the same time, she also had other characteristics like her bravery that that were positive as well. So I'm a little bit torn about Sally. What do you think about her? 
I'm a little torn about her too. So I do like that we see her come in and have some of that like physical strength that Encyclopedia lacks. And I, I did read that in creating this very relatable, accessible character for kids, Donald Sobel knew that he needed to offer a sort of bodyguard figure for Encyclopedia. And originally he played with the idea of a big brother um, and then like a male best friend, I think. And then he decided to base Sally off of his older sister and his mom, who he viewed as both very strong women in his life. And it's interesting because when I was reading reviews and like think pieces reflecting on the Encyclopedia Brown series, most of them were written by white men. And they said things like, it was so great to see that like girls can do anything. Like it was the first time I had been presented with an example of a girl who was brave and tough and strong and smart and like all of these things. And of course, I appreciate that in the 60s and the 70s, even the 80s, like these books offered that to boys who maybe hadn't thought that way and to girls who hadn't seen people who looked like them presented in that way before. But it also in 2022 just like makes me sad that like that's a thing that had to happen. And also like this whole idea that she has to be so tough and mean. Like the first page that we meet her, she's like beating up Bugs Meanie and his friends. And it's so hard to be like, I love to see that as a woman. Like it's so great to see a little girl kicking ass because I don't want anybody have to kick anybody's ass like so it's complicated I'm like if somebody is going to be tough I guess I'm happy that it's this this girl character who seems to live in a world entirely populated by boys but you just hate to see a world presented that requires that kind of violence I agree I, I just feel so torn about Sally yeah I do love that she kind of comes in as Encyclopedia's bodyguard, though. Like, they just take themselves so seriously. And it speaks, again, to this, like, kid economy and this kid world that they're building. Agreed. So on this page, I actually wrote down that I think this book has a Charlie Brown and the Peanuts slash Little Rascals quality. And I think I felt that way because we get the sense of, like, the Tigers as this gang that are like, we don't like girls. Like, girls aren't allowed to hang out with us. Did you pick up on, on that vibe at all? You just reminded me that I totally did get Charlie Brown vibes. Um, I forgot to write it down, but especially when I saw the sign and kind of those like charming little quotes, like no crime too small and 25 cents per day. I definitely got those vibes and I love Charlie Brown. So maybe that helped contribute to um, why I enjoyed rereading these so much. Yeah, it feels I just I was picturing that style of animation even while I was reading the book. So Sally, as you alluded to, Jules, does not best encyclopedia in this battle of the brains. And he proves that he is smarter than she is, which is hard to read. Although I did discover in my research that she beats him to the punch on a lot of mysteries later on in the series. Oh, good. Yeah, so she does end up playing a bigger role in solving solving the mysteries. In the next story, the case of the bank robber, Sally is the one who suggests to Encyclopedia that they begin to put money in the bank. So that I think was a really good thing for her to bring in as a suggestion. This next section was a little off-putting just in terms of language, because there's a lot of talk of a man described as the beggar, which I just don't think is language, again, that we would assign in 2022. Yeah, that's a really good point. I didn't pick up on that, um, but it's a really good point. And I take back what I said earlier about not solving any of the mysteries because I solved this one, Jules. Good. I did. um, I got this one, too. Yeah, this was a good one. This was um, like a bank robber who is sort of actually in cahoots with this man that they describe as the beggar. And so while they think that the bank robber got away, it's just because he passed off the, the loot to Blind Tom the beggar, who, again, I wish was not called Blind Tom the beggar. I really like the illustration on this one as well of the inn where the blind man lived. Um, yeah. I just thought it, it really gave, it really put me right into the scene of, of what it looked and felt like. Yeah, I like that one a lot too. The case of the happy nephew is next. This one was sort of confusing to me. I was confused as well. I don't really understand the solution here. Again, we have a robbery at a bake shop and there is an alibi that doesn't check out because of the age of a child. Like it was a little confusing for me. So I think what they were trying to say, I was definitely confused by this one as well. The um, robber had said, oh, well, it couldn't have been me because I was on the road for 12 hours. And that would have put him 
kind of just there at that time and place. And then Encyclopedia Brown saying was then you can't have the baby on the car because the car would have been warm if you had just been traveling 12 hours and just got here. But I agree. I think that was the hardest and most confusing one. And I'm not a lawyer or an expert or a judge, but like, I don't know Encyclopedia if that kind of evidence would hold up in the court of law. I'm just saying. Yeah. So funny. I actually am a lawyer. Oh, so you can tell us. (laughs) Would that hold up? I'm, I'm trained as a lawyer and I still didn't uh, get that one. Yeah, I'm not sure that that's the kind of thing that would uh, really secure a conviction for somebody. No. That the, the roof of the car would have been right. too hot, yeah. but I appreciate that he's smart enough to at least make that call. Or maybe you can kind of, that would kind of lead your interrogation where you kind of throw that in the guy's face a couple times. But is that going to get you a conviction? I don't know. I hope not, because I feel like that wouldn't say a lot about our judicial system. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, so the case of the diamond necklace is next. And the big note that I wrote in the margins on these pages is we are really jumping to conclusions here. I So I agree, but I did get this one. I kind of knew where it was going. And I don't know if it's just from reading so many thrillers. Yes. But I just kind of knew that that scenario would lend to that conclusion where you know you have a locked door locked door mystery yeah you know they were trying to kind of trying to make it seem like it was someone from the outside but I guess I've just read too many locked door mysteries that I I kind of just knew it was the person behind the locked door yeah this one had a few more hallmarks I think of like classic mysteries like the jewelry the gunshot like you said the locked door situation I can see how stories like this would lead someone directly into like Sherlock Holmes and other mysteries. I actually found an essay by somebody who then trained as like a medical examiner and has worked in all of these different investigatory capacities. And he credits Encyclopedia Brown as like his original inspiration. So I'll link that essay in the show notes for this episode, listeners, if you want to check it out. I'd love to see that. That sounds so interesting. Yeah. Okay. So the case of the knife in the watermelon... (laughs) oddly specific as a as a as a chapter name and here we meet Mr. Patch who is the first grown up to come to the Brown Detective Agency and now you know that you're really in business because a grown up is coming to be your client and he shows up with a watermelon naturally that has a knife sticking into it and the solution of this one ends up being very specific in that it actually relates to like how far in the the knife has been stuck into the watermelon like ultimately that's the clue that leads encyclopedia to the solution is that like the knife has been stuck all the way into the watermelon and not just kind of like piercing the outside yeah i thought this one was a good one for kids i think this was one where if you were kind of really paying attention to all the clues all along um, maybe you'd be able to get it yeah, and it's also like a little silly for kids too. Like I like the range of mysteries that we get here. Some of them are a little bit higher stakes. And then you have this one here that's like a watermelon with a knife right. in it. And like, what's going on? The case of the missing roller skates, you kind of referred to earlier, Jules, because this is the one with Dr. Vivian Wilson. And I have a note in my book here that says, why are there roller skates at the doctor? Because the whole setup of this mystery is that Sally Kimball's roller skates are in the waiting room of a doctor's office because Encyclopedia brought them with him because I guess he's like bringing them to her, which I just thought was kind of funny. Like this this idea that this little boy is like carrying roller skates to the doctor so that he can bring them to his friends. And I also just like love the notion of these like little kids going to the doctor on their own without any parental (laughs) supervision. And then like the the number of times like HIPAA was violated in this mystery, obviously like different times, but some of those little details did make me laugh. And then there's a section in this mystery that I highlighted that reads, he ruled out a grown-up first because it was unlikely that a grown-up would steal an old pair of small skates. Second, because a grown-up would be too hard to catch. Too many men and women went in and out of the medical building every hour. And my note here was irresponsible detective work. <laughs> I loved how he um, you know, took it upon himself to go to every single office and, and interrogate them as to who was there that day. And like you said, violate every HIPAA rule. <laughs> Yeah, he just like takes matters into his own hands. I liked that mystery though, too. Um, Even though I thought some of the little details of it were silly. Mm -hmm. I liked the hints and I liked the solution for that one I found very satisfying, which as you mentioned, had to do with the doctor. And yeah, the specificity there was kind of like a good payoff. 
And then the final mystery is called The Case of the Champion Egg Spinner. And this one felt like very of the time because you have encyclopedia, like going to get an ice cream soda with Mr. O'Hara. And he he hears somebody talking about an egg spinning match, which I thought at first, I was like, is that a real thing? Like, is this like a sport in Idaville that they have egg spinning competitions? But no, this is just something that this particular person has come up with. And the big kicker here is that he was spinning a hard boiled egg and not like a raw egg. So there was no spillage. I thought that was a super hard one. Yeah, I thought so too. Um, I like the illustration in this chapter too with the kids staring at the eggs. Yeah, and just picturing that uh, old fashioned uh, ice cream store. Yeah, it made me really want a milkshake. Oh, love one. Yes. (laughs) Okay, so we're talking about the Rory Gilmore Book Club. What do you think Rory Gilmore would think about Encyclopedia Brown? So I think Rory would probably like Encyclopedia Brown. He kind of is like Rory Gilmore. Yeah. The episode that this book came up in, I also think was such a good episode for it to come up. Um, I was just watching it now. It's it's in the episode, season three, episode 14, Swan Song. Oh, that's a good one. And it's right when Rory starts dating Jess. And she brings him to Friday night dinner with just her and Emily. Uh, Lorelai has gone away for the weekend and Jess shows up with a black eye. And I think it's like, you know, if it were Encyclopedia Brown, it would be the case of Jess's black eye. This entire time we're trying to figure out where did Jess get this black eye? And turns out it's not a fight with Dean. It's from a swan smacking him in the face. So um, <laughs> that's kind of funny as well. And, and also the line that it came up in the episode um, was also funny. So Rory and Jess were um, kind of making out in, in Luke's apartment and Lorelai runs in and she's, oh my gosh, she's like so flustered that she caught them. And she says, I was just looking for a a book of Luke's. And he said, well, if it's not Encyclopedia Brown, that's really going to narrow things down. (laughs) And I thought that was funny too, that um, we leave the Gilmore Girls knowing that Encyclopedia Brown is Luke's all-time favorite book series. That makes sense to me. (laughs) I would also like to point out that Jules is wearing her Luke's Diner shirt. I am wearing it. My sister texted me today and she was wearing a Gilmore Girls sweatshirt. And I thought, you know, first of all, I'm inspired and influenced. Second, if I'm not going to wear it today, when am I going to wear it? It's true. I feel honored that you wore it for our recording. (laughs) I will also say that I think something that Encyclopedia and Rory share in common is that smart and yet like sort of um, humble combination and not being always sure how to present their intelligence to people still being somewhat socially aware like while Rory is a little awkward I don't think she necessarily played into some of the tropes that we'd seen to that point about smart kids like she's social and she goes out and she has friends even if she is a little quirky so I think that they probably could have been friends in some alternate fictional universe I agree and I pose to you the ultimate hypothetical (gasps) okay if Encyclopedia Brown dated Rory, would we change from Team Logan to Team Encyclopedia? Because there really are a lot of similarities there. I think that being with Logan was good for Rory because he was so different from her. So I think I think that Encyclopedia Brown would have sort of kept her in her comfort zone. And I think it was really good for Rory to get out of her comfort zone. That's a really good point. It makes me think of To All the Boys I've Loved Before. Yes. Encyclopedia is the John Ambrose. Yes. And Logan is the Peter Kavinsky. Totally. I love when I get to sort of like blend different fictional worlds on (laughs) recordings. So thank you for like just being prepared to cross all of these like boundaries, blur all these lines with me. I'd love to hear what other people think. Yeah. What team they are, first of all. And then would they be team encyclopedia? Yes. Please tell us listeners, (laughs) let us know on Instagram, send us a DM, comment on the post for this episode. We need to know what team you're on and what you think about a potential Rory Gilmore Encyclopedia Brown romance. (laughs) So Jules, I know it's been a long time since you first read Encyclopedia Brown, and you said that you don't have a lot of specific memories of your reading experience, but I'm just curious, like how coming back to this series now as an adult compares to what you do remember about it. And if you really don't remember anything, I guess I'm just curious as to how coming to it now met or did not meet your expectations of it. 
I definitely think it met my expectations. And I think what I could say is rereading it, it felt very fun to me. I didn't have those feelings of deep nostalgia and love. Like when Stony Clover Lane came out with the American Girls line and I was first in line the day, the moment it came out buying my <laughs> American Girls tote bags. I didn't have those feelings, but when I read it, I thought, wow, this is so fun. I love flipping to the back. I love that they're so short. I love the parents and kids can read them together. I love that it could be for boys or for girls. I love that it makes you think. It makes you learn how to listen to facts and kind of solve things on your own. So it was a really good feeling for me looking back on it. How did you feel about it? I thought it was a lot of fun. It reminded me of like the highlights magazines that you would sit and read in the doctor's office when you were a kid, or if you had a subscription, like it gives you an opportunity to like use your brain and figure out different puzzles. I think I really would have enjoyed it as a kid. And maybe I would have become a more observant adult had I <laughs> had I dabbled in Encyclopedia Brown when I was growing up. I'd love to hear um, if any of your listeners have kids that they've read it with, um, if the kids are solving the mysteries. We've had you know, a hard time with some of them ourselves as adults. I'd be curious to hear what kids think if they're easy, medium, hard, and if they're if they're getting them uh, with their parents. Yeah, definitely let us know, listeners, uh, if you've been reading these with your kiddos. So Jules, other than Encyclopedia Brown, what have you been reading lately that you would recommend to our listeners? I went back and forth on this so much. I figured you would um, ask me this question and I was so completely torn um, what to say because I've read a lot of decent books so far this year. Um, we're, we're recording right at the end of February, so we're two months in, but I didn't know if I read one that I, I so desperately wanted to recommend. So um, I wrote down two books that um, I will uh, recommend. And the first one, I liked it because it's a mystery and we're on the topic of mysteries. And it was actually my favorite book that was published last year. And it was The Last Thing He Told Me by Laura Dave. And it's a Reese Witherspoon book club book. And um, it's sort of a family mystery um, where a woman uh, wakes up and gets, has a note left behind from her husband saying, protect her. And he's gone. And protect her means um, his stepdaughter. Um, and she's kind of left to unravel um, this mystery as the FBI shows up and they're investigating his workplace. And it wasn't just about thrills or mystery. It was also about family and how you cope with that, whether it's being the primary caretaker for the stepdaughter now or just thinking about who was this person? Is it really a good person or was it a bad person that I married? And it really just held my attention so much. And you can follow along with that mystery. And it's the type of book you could just read in a couple hours and fly right through it. And the other one I wanted to recommend was I really enjoyed the book I read for the Rory Gilmore Book Club last month's challenge, which was to read a short book. I did also read a children's book, and that's why I thought your readers might like it as well. It was Little House in the Big Woods by Laura Ingalls Wilder. Um, it was my first foray into that uh, whole series, and I did it on audiobook, and it was only about an hour, and it was so good on audio because it had all these little songs, and it reminded me of the Kirsten books from American Girls. Like People like that. I think they would have a really fun hour um, specifically listening to this book. Cool. Well, I will include links to both of them in the show notes for this episode. And I'll make sure to include a link to the Libro FM audiobook of Little House in the Big Woods, because that does sound like a really fun way to read it. Now, Jules, I would love if you would tell us a little bit more about your blog. I know you told us at the beginning about the Rory Gilmore book club, but is there anything else that our listeners should know about what you're doing? So I did also mention earlier um, that the theme is um, where books meet lifestyle. So it really is based off of my childhood love of reading Rainbow. Um, and I always try to pair things. You know, there's a whole range. I do a lot on Harry Potter. I do a lot on celebrity book clubs. Um, and then there really is a range of, of any kind of book, but I always try to pair it with lifestyles. So for example, one of the, the ways I came up with um, the idea was I had come back from um, my honeymoon in Italy and I had all these notes on my phone and it was like, I had my reading list for each city and my travel itinerary for each city. So that's kind of like what gave me the idea. And I thought, well, maybe other people like to do this too, where they're, they're kind of like reading what they're doing in real life or kind of pairing them the same way. So that's kind of what, what I do there. And I send out um, some fun email newsletters. My newsletters are always on a theme as well. Um, last week I did children's books. So I'll do the same thing with, with the email newsletter where it's a little bit of books and then a little bit of lifestyle on the same topic. 
So that, that's about it. And um, if people want to follow, um, the easiest way to follow the Rory Gilmore Book Club is on Instagram at the Rory Gilmore Book Club. That's the handle. And you can easily catch up, although this is going to be published in March. I specifically made the first three challenges really easy. The first one for January was a short book. The second one was a children's book. And the third is an adaptation. So if your listeners want to do three children's books in a row to catch up with us, they definitely can. Um, and then we'll move forward into harder books, um, more classics and diverse books as, as the year progresses. So fun. Well, I've, I've been following the Rory Gilmore book club on Instagram for a really long time. Like I think maybe since I started SSR. So I'm a big fan of what you do over there. Listeners, if you're not already following, you totally should be go check out Jules's blog. I'll make sure that you have links and an easy access to social media as well. Jules, it was so much fun chatting with you today. And it's just nice to meet a fellow book lover and another Philly girl. Yep. Two Philly girls. Yes. Two Philly book lovers. And we're going to have to do another Gilmore girls chat at some point. You're inspiring me to do another binge watch. I have not watched in a really long time and I might be ready to fall down the rabbit hole again. I think you're going to fall down the rabbit hole. I have to prepare mentally. It has been <laughs> so much fun chatting with you. Thank you for your time. And thank you for inviting me to collaborate with you on this really fun challenge. Agreed. It was so much fun. Bye Jules. Bye. SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR Podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind the scenes inside scoop, and some good old fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.